listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 278. Man, we're almost to 300. Almost to 300. Mm-hmm. If we slow down enough to all these new shows, maybe we'll plan something for our 300th episode. Yeah, I don't even want to hear about that right now. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah, I'm over it. Audrey's over it. We're all over it. So, But anyway, we have a review. You want to read it, Mark? Yep. Trust you're doing great. My name is Tosan Faradine, and I'm an engineer in the oil and gas sector in Nigeria. Love your podcast and really appreciate your knowledge in the space. I've had some good years working in this sector here, which has exposed me to some loopholes in the Nigerian oil and gas industry. I wouldn't mind some future collaboration and mentorship if possible because I have some plans, although they're rough, to help revamp the upstream and downstream, most especially in equipment manufacturing. Thank you for all you do and have a blessed evening. Cheers. And so I actually reach out to Tosan and we're going to have a call set up, which by the way, audience, if you leave a review, it doesn't automatically mean I'm going to have a call with you. But if it is something interesting- Oh, you're such a pushover. No, I mean, if I can help here and it doesn't involve Nigerian princesses, so it has to be totally good stuff. That you're aware of, yeah. That's a joke. I know. Okay. Yeah. But the review's legit, so thank you very much for the review. All right, it looks like we have a lot to talk about this we week. We do have a lot to talk about. All right, well, let's start off with oil major shutting Gulf of Mexico production as Hurricane Ian advances. This is literally happening right now as we record on Tuesday. Chevron and Petronas and BP all have shut down their platforms They've because of the potential storm that's coming in. It doesn't like it's threatening the platform. They're playing it safe for their people. Unfortunately, this is going to pull over 100,000 barrels a day of production and about 90 million cubic feet of gas off the market. This has already caused oil and gas prices to spike the speculation that this storm was going to do this, which it did. But both on land and offshore, all the interesting players, Chevron, Shell, BP, everything is worried about the safety of their people first, then the safety of their equipment second. So the safety of their people's top priority. They're doing the right things. Like I said, it doesn't look like the storms can impact any of the actual facilities, but they're not taking any chances. And this is one of the things I actually love that our industry does. This is millions of dollars of lost revenue. But you know what? The people come first. Well, yeah. Well, you also got to realize this happens every year. Yep. And it's a regulation. You're required to evacuate. Right. So it is what it is. And I'm just prayers out to the people of Florida that are about yeah. to get hit. So it looks like class three. So it has a bit of a wallop. I think I saw four on the news a while ago. Four. Okay. That's getting really serious. And then it's going to pull a Hurricane Andrew and just kind of slow down when it goes back down to a one. But they're saying it's just south of Tampa. Yeah. That's yeah. going to be hitting. Definitely prayers for everybody in Florida. Yeah, for sure. All right. Nord Stream operator decries unprecedented damage to three pipelines. Okay, this is the point where I usually go, this is a Russian ploy, and they're using it to threaten Europe. This, at this point, it's very early on, looks like it was sabotage. It looks like it's not Russia faking it to threaten Europe. Of the three pipelines, one of which is not completed at Nordstrom 3, the other two which are flowing, they've lost about 90% of their pressure. There's already uh, videos and pictures coming in showing the natural gas bubbling up from the bottom of the ocean. And so it's too early to tell what's going on. If this was sabotage, number one, it was sophisticated because of the depth of the pipeline, how it's buried. Number two, it got around all of the safety parameters yeah. that are built in these pipelines. So it makes me think that it's not environmental activists because there's really no way they could have access to this pipeline. It makes me think there's something more sophisticated. No idea what it is. It's way too early. The good thing is Russia did cut off the supply of gas so that we're not dumping a bunch of natural gas in the ocean. Not that that's any big deal. 
but they're in the process right now of getting equipment out there, crews out there to figure out what's happened. We're going to stay. That's crazy. Yeah. We're going to keep a really close eye on this because this is at the point when everything else is going on between Russia and Ukraine and Germany. We're going to talk about that. The winter's coming for Europe, and this is just horrendous timing. And like I said, at this early state, this does look like it was actually sabotage. More to come on this. All right. Governments urged to act after oil giants accused of misleading public. This is such a misleading news article. Now, of course, this is in The Guardian, which is life left-wing slant. Uh, we actually had, who sent this to me? Mohammed. Ooh, Mohammed. Siyan? Siyam? Mohammed Siyam? Business Development at Livo, L-I-V-O. He sent this to me, wanted us to comment on it. So basically what happened is by e-discovery, so basically the, all the super majors have been sued so many times, people have access to all these emails going years and years back. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is some of these companies will take BP is perfect for this explanation and Shell. So internally, they had emails, business people inside of Shell and BP saying, look, we're going to be talking about carbon capture and storage, but we don't want to talk about it as a way to prolong the life of oil because if it gets out, the people that don't like us will then use it against us in social media, which is exactly what this article is. There's nothing bad that was undiscovered. It's literally companies doing risk management for social media from anti-oil and gas organizations saying, look, we don't want to talk about this. We don't want to bring this up. We want to be straight. We want to be factual. And then what's happening is they're giving guidance to employees and they're saying, look, we don't want employees to be talking about this unless you've been trained to represent the company properly because we're in a lot of litigation over this. Yeah. And so this is just another attempt by people to take documents that were obtained legally from the super majors in this case. And then try to use them saying that they knew something, they're doing something on purpose, which all they were really doing is prepping for risk in case this type of stuff did get out there. It's no different than the planning that we do here at OGGN. If we're getting ready to launch a new podcast and there's some risky subjects involved, we do an evaluation on whether we want to talk about the subject or not. Does that put us in potential litigation, right? And so this is just, The Guardian is horrible and always doing this sort of stuff. Some of the people they interviewed to comment on this are Friends of Earth, the Sierra Club, 365.org, all organizations. All balance point material. <laughs> all balance point material, for sure. <laughs> all organizations that publicly, they hate the oil and gas industry. You know, The Guardian likes to tell a story in a certain slant. This one story barely has legs on it. But, Muhammad, I do appreciate you sending it in. All right. So the next one is Germany takes control of Russian-owned oil refineries. See, world, this is getting serious. So there's a couple of oil refineries that are joint ventures between Russia and a shell, I believe, that are actually on German soil. Because of what's going on, the German government has seized control of these three Russian-owned oil refineries, and they're doing it to secure the refinable products, gasoline, diesel, that makes fuel, sense. as they yeah. head into winter because they don't know what Russia is going to do. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. And so basically they're using this to counter the threat of anything that Russia may do for the energy security of Germany. So this is unexpected, but it makes sense. They have the legal rights to do this. Shell has already stepped in and said, look, we're comply with the contractual obligations, but when the government of Germany's assume these refineries, uh, we're help keeping them up running and keeping them up running safe. So when bad things happen in this world, and governments started assuming other countries' investments, like refineries. This is getting so serious, people. This, I don't want people to get scared there's going to be a third world war, but this is the type of stuff that leads up to those type of things. Um, I'm pretty sure there's going to be one eventually. I hope not. I mean, yeah, we can hope all we want, but yeah, the odds are up there. Anyway, Putin mobilizes more troops for Ukraine, threatens nuclear retaliation, and backs annexation of Russian-occupied land. Okay, a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Okay, so number one is what's happening is there's certain provinces of Ukraine that Russia has control over that all of a sudden decided to vote during warfare and say they wanted Russia to annex them. 
I'm sorry, but that's bullshit, right? Russia planted those people that called for the vote. This is a way for them to try to show the world that these people want to be part of Russia. Those people hate Russia. And there's a long history there I don't want to get into, but this is Russia wanting to take over another country's territory illegally in the middle of a war. The next thing that's important to notice here is he's threatening nuclear action. You know, I talked earlier about not wanting World War III to start. When you start threatening nuclear action, yeah. guess what? Countries have to defend themselves. Exactly. And everybody gets on a hair trigger. And what in normal times could be a mistake, like military airplanes straying into your airspace, all of a sudden you look at the thing totally different. And the thing about nuclear weapons is Russia and Ukraine both geographically sit so close to each other that if nuclear weapons start, nuclear weapons aren't a pinpoint targeted munition. It has a large blast radius, a lot of fallout, even if they're small nuclear, if they're tactical nukes. So what's going to happen with Europe and NATO especially and the U.S. is that if the first time somebody pulls a nuclear weapon and sets it off in that part of the world, we're going to have to retaliate to protect ourselves. Yeah. The next thing that's going on is if you look at talking about they're recruiting more Russian troops and that goes Okay, well, that means it's serious. They're going to have more troops. No, what that's telling me. Now, remember, I spent four years of my life planning for this in the Marine Corps during the Cold War. Russia trains its troops differently than we do here in the U.S. So here in the U.S., you get individual training. Most armed services branches calls it boot camp for about 10 or 12 weeks, right? Then you get specialized training, your MOC, whatever your job is, you get specialized training. And then after that, you get group training. Russia can't afford to do that. So Russia trains their troops for three or four weeks in a group setting. So let me back up. So as a Marine, I know how to keep you alive. I was trained individually how to make sure you don't bleed out, make sure you're breathing, make sure you have a heart rate until medics get there and can take over. I was trained one-on-one by experts how to do that. In Russia, it's a group of 30 to 40 people that watch that type of training. Mm. They don't get the one-on-one. And they don't get it for 10 weeks. They get it for five weeks, right? Yeah. Russian male citizens are fleeing the country right now because they don't want to be drafted, the, whatever the word is in Russian. And so this tells me that Russia's at the very end of its strength, that where it's pulling its last bit of reserves, it's making their people join the army. They're not getting any training. They're also pulling criminals out of jail and promising them amnesty if they fight. So this is Russia getting to the point where it just can't keep the war up anymore. That's why they're threatening nukes right here. This is super dangerous for the world. Yeah. Super dangerous. And then unfortunately, at least here, I don't have a lot of faith in our current administration to respond to this properly. Mm. So just I hope and pray that cool heads prevail. There's still a chance that Ukraine and Russia can have a peace treaty. Ukraine is not going to give up land, especially if you don't know this. Ukraine is actually starting to push Russian troops out of their country. Yeah. And so this is dangerous. This is as dangerous a situation as a Cuban Missile Crisis for you around in the 60s. Well, you know what's interesting, Mark, is yesterday they gave Edward Snowden citizenship. Of course. With the national, yeah, yeah. national secrets. Yeah. That's a totally different conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's still sus. Yeah. No, it's very suspicious. Our current administration, President Biden fussed at Moscow in a speech at the United Nations that basically Putin's war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist, which I actually believe is true. I think I think Putin is literally trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. But I wouldn't put it past him. It's not going to happen. Like I said, I just hope that, that the U.S. and Europe and our allies are ready to do what we need to do if it goes that far. Yeah. All right, let's move along. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon calls for more investment in oil and gas. Quote, we aren't getting out of this one. Yeah. Getting this one right, end quote. So what's cool about this, so this is the CEO of J.P. Morgan. So he's looking at the financial world. So not what's happened in the U.S. He's looking at literally the entire world. And he's looking at what's going on. And he's saying, look, we have not got this one right. We pushed too hard for renewables here in Europe. At the same time, the world needs more energy. At the same time, there's not enough supply. People are going hungry. People are going to freeze. 
prices are going up everywhere, inflation's going up, all because of these political choices we made with renewals. And once again, folks, I love renewals. This isn't my words. This is a huge JP Morgan. So what he's saying is we need to go back and quickly start investing back in oil and gas and even coal to get our energy supply back where it was so it lowers the prices for everybody. So then we can intelligently, slowly, and without being desperate, look at reducing the use of fossil fuels and look at the energy transition in the right way. He goes on to say that it's not just the U.S. and Europe that are suffering, but the countries that are suffering worse or more are the poorer nations like India, China, Indonesia, Vietnam, and even the wealthy nations like Germany, France, and Netherlands are suffering. And this trend can be turned around if we decide that we get away from trying to force renewables on the world and understand that this climate change catastrophe is not legit. There may be climate change, but the people that are screaming that the but it's not a crisis tomorrow yeah. are wrong. And it's just really interesting to see somebody that has no ties to the oil and gas industry that is strictly looking at this from a financial point of view, literally slam his hand on the table and go, look, we're doing this the wrong way. I don't know this guy, but I like him already. Oh, uh, yeah. I bank with him. So <laughs> energy CEO hits at energy ignorance driving current policy. Little hope of ending the crisis anytime soon. Okay. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes, not only this article that we're talking about right now, but also the direct transcript from his speech at the digital forum. Mm-hmm. This is Sari Ramco's president and CEO, Aman Nasir. And he's going, hey, this energy transition thing with renewables, you're killing people. You're destroying economies. You're making a socioeconomic shift that doesn't work and that we have to go back and start investing money back into oil and gas and even coal, unfortunately, because the world is running out of energy at the same time while the world is having an appetite for more and more energy. And he says that the red flags were up for the last five years and everybody ignored it. And I agree with him. I actually talk about it a bunch on this show. But you know what? Very proud of him for standing up. A lot of his peers, the leadership of, say, BP and Shell, the BP of Equinor, aren't singing this song, right? They're singing a different song. And he is 100% right. I 100% agree with him. And he's not saying that we don't need to transition away from fossil fuels. Just like the CEO of JP Morgan, he's saying that the world is hurting right now because we made bad decisions and we need to quit making bad decisions and start making smart decisions for the benefit of our people. So hats off to him for having the courage to say that. And like I said, the link to not only this news article, but his actual transcript. If you get a chance, you should read the transcript. He is very well educated on climate change. He is very well educated on world finance. He makes some very good points. And somebody needed to say this in a global form. And thank God people like him and the CEO of JP Morgan are doing that. Yeah. So next one is Shell CEO Ben Van Buren to step down renewables boss Wally. How do you say that? Sawan? No, I got the Sawan part, but I can't pronounce Wile. Wile. I, I don't know. To take the helm. Yeah. So I've gotten a whole bunch of questions on social around this saying Shell going too far down the renewable side, they're replacing their current leadership with a guy that loves renewables. Let me tell you the truth. Don't I don't doubt at all that he loves renewable, but the guy that's taken his place has been at Shell for 25 years, and most of his time he worked on the downstream side of Shell. So he knows oil and gas, and since he worked on the downstream side of Shell, he understands the finance and the importance of hydrocarbons, right? So this is just a normal transition. Ben Van Buren, I thought, did some really good stuff. I also think he quite unfortunately did some really not so smart stuff. Shell's shares have reflected that. And it was just about time for them to change leadership. Their new leader is going to actually focus a lot on integrated gas and also renewables and also the energy transition. But he's also not going to ignore their existing hydrocarbon business, which is something I think their previous leadership did a little bit too much of. And like we said, we've talked about this before about how companies have tried to move too fast, too quick, and it's hurt them. It's hurt their share price. Shell's in the middle of that, right? They've gotten some praise for their energy transition plans, 
but also remembered that when the Netherlands said that they needed to move things faster, they uprooted a 100-year-old company and moved the headquarters to London, right? Ah, yeah. Remember that? Mm-hmm. So, so countries, be careful, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, be careful about holding oil and gas companies accountable for something that's not legit. You're liable to lose all those jobs that those companies bring to your country, and Shell's a perfect example of that. I'm looking forward to this guy stepping in. I think he's going to make some changes at Shell that has been needed for a while, so we'll keep an eye on how he does. Okay. All right. So the next one is Paris and New York join climate litigation against Total Energies. So let me just stop for a second before I even get into this. Let's say Paris and New York win this case. Uh-huh. And Total has to do whatever the judge says they have to do. Okay. That's going to add cost to Total and what they produce, which is basically energy. Yeah. And you know who's going to cover that cost? The consumer. Mm. You and me. The citizens of New York and Paris, if they win this case, are going to pay more than they're paying now. They're already paying a buttload for power right now for energy. So basically, this is the same old, same old here. It's municipalities, in this case, Paris and New York, taking legal action against a super major, in this case, Total. Now it's been renamed Total Energies because they didn't take the dramatic cuts they should have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and align themselves with the Paris Climate Agreement, which, by the way, has no legal authority whatsoever. Right. It's just an agreement. Yeah, just agreement. And so they're contributing to this catastrophic climate change. And so they're suing them. This is just going to end up in court going back and forth. This is a PR move by both cities. Oh, totally. Even if they win, it doesn't benefit anybody. Now, honestly, if I would pick the super majors out there that have done the most to try to reduce their CO2 emissions at methane, Total would be probably the number one. Yeah. Right, right close to Shell. Mm-hmm. Right. So they've done everything they can do. They can only move so fast. I really dislike this sort of stuff. I would think that Paris, with its some of the highest unemployment in the world, and New York with some of the most dangerous streets in a very short amount of time, and also some of the highest prices to live in, would spend more of their time trying to help their citizens. They than don't care. Super major. They just want to get voted back in. Yeah. That's what I think this is. Yeah. So midterms. All right. So the next one is Air Lockheed, Chevron, Keppel Infrastructure, and PetroChina to explore CCUS solutions in Singapore. This is beautiful. So what they've basically said, these four companies, is, hey, this a carbon capture and storage thing is legit. The world wants it. We can make money at it. Why don't we partner up and mitigate the risk and let's do this thing? And if you think about this, this is no different than all the joint ventures you see these same companies, you know, Chevron, yeah. PetroChina, make when they're drilling for oil, right, to right. mitigate that risk. The cool thing is they already have a business plan that the CO2, besides being used for well stimulation, which I've talked about a million times in the show, they have plans with Air Liquide's help to use that same CO2 to turn it into plastics and cement. So, and the only reason I'm laughing is if two of the other industries that get a lot of bad attention from environmental point of view are actually the cement manufacturers and the plastic manufacturers. To me, I find it ironically funny that they're going to use CO2 to make these products and this CO2 carbon capture and storage facility is going to be funded in part, if not wholly, by tax incentives mm-hmm. and regulations on these different countries, which the people will pay for. I think it's beautiful. And all joking aside, let's say I am wrong and that this climate catastrophe has some truth to it and that I am wrong about CO2's impact to our environment. If anybody could fix that, it's going to be the super majors. Nobody in this world has the ability to do large, complex, global projects on time and on budget, right? Right. Does it change my mind about anything? I do think it's ironically funny they're going to make money off this. The environmentalists aren't going to figure this out and they're going to applaud this, which just makes it easier for these companies to do business, which is really good for all of us. Exactly. All right. So Michael Bloomberg launches 85 million campaign to stop rapid rise of pollution from the petrochemical industry in the United States. Speaking of PR. Yep. So 
First thing, Michael Bloomberg's empire could not exist without petrochemicals. This podcast that you're listening to could not exist without petrochemicals. Whatever you're listening to was made for, of this podcast was made from petrochemicals. We can produce petrochemicals cleanly and efficiently, just like hydrocarbons. The U.S. produces the cleanest petrochemicals in the world. Why do you want to bring this to court? Let me tell you what's going to happen. If they're successful, it's going to add cost to the petrochemical industry. And guess what? That may drive them out of the U.S. And let me promise you this. You start producing petrochemicals in India and China, nobody cares rat's butt about the air or water or the people that work there. So this is not good for anybody. It's not good for any of the communities. And I love the fact they like to talk about how it's going to help the communities. They specifically talk about South Louisiana and some of the plastic projects, methanol projects. South Louisiana could use these jobs. And if you push hard enough for this, and if you're successful, South Louisiana is going to lose these jobs. And they're going to go somewhere, and they just won't be in South Louisiana. You know, they talk, once again, about Louisiana, it's Cancer Alley. That has been disproven a million and one times. Just because there's a whole bunch of petrochemical plants up down the Mississippi River, cancer rates are the same there as they are anywhere else in the South. That's an important caveat there. Right. And so I wish Bloomberg could do something better with his money than stuff like this. You and I were watching a thing earlier about all the homeless cats and dogs that are having to be euthanized. Yeah. That would be a better use of his money or maybe feeding the poor people. But no, to your point, Paige, he wants some political, he has a political agenda and this is a way for him to help get there. I really wish he would do better than this. This is ridiculous. Well, I wonder what he's going to run for next time. Who knows? I know, right? All right. So the last one isn't actually an article. It's a TikTok I found and sent to Mark. Basically talks about how there's weird coincidences with all these refinery fires and explosions here in the United States. I think I've counted a total of three in the past six months. And of course, you know, when things like that happen, they have to go offline and everything. that takes time. And then you have to bring them back up and that could take forever too. But then I started really digging into it and I counted nine internationally, like all over the world. So three in the U.S., one in Canada, and five internationally. So I just think it's been really lucky that not so many people have died, but I think I counted four dead total and then uh, eight injured. Yeah, what an interesting place to get this from, from TikTok, which, by the way, shout out to London, who's now officially running the OGG and TikTok. Take it easy on her. She's new, right? But this is just another place for us to get news. I would like our listeners out there who understand the different units of a refining process do they often catch on fire? Because this data makes it look like something out of the normal is happening, but it could be based upon the number of refineries in the world and the percentage-wise that this is normal. So you count it nine that have had fires. And explosions. I knocked this out in like you know, an hour, and I wrote down all the dates and, and where they were. What time is these nine over? Since June. Since June. Since the end of June. Okay. So three months, we've had nine petrochemical refinery fires and units have went down, if not the whole refinery. If any of our listeners out there know anything about this, let us know. Does this sound suspicious to you or does this sound like normal? You know, when you look at things like lumber processing, like the mills that cut lumber, they catch on fire all the time. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So I just don't have enough knowledge or experience to figure out if this is out of the ordinary or ordinary. And if anybody knows, let us know. And we'll also follow up on this. Love actually getting news from TikTok. The more sources we have for news, the better for us and better for our audience. Yeah, it was strange to come across that. And I was wrong on my numbers. And feel free to correct me, anyone. It was a total of seven dead. Seven. Okay. Yeah. And one actually happened today in Poland. In Poland. Okay. Speaking of TikTok and advertising, if you want to advertise with us for the first time ever, you can actually buy an ad spot on this show or any of our other podcasts. Very, very inexpensive. Go to OGGN.com forward slash pricing. All our pricing is there for that and for everything else we do. We've moved our energy continuity conference out to April. So there's still plenty of the exhibitor spots. We'll put a link in the show notes for that. That's going to be a really cool time. A weekly rig count, Paige, where are we? Oh, it's looking good. We're up one in the United States at 764. 
Canada, we're up four at 215. Internationally, we're up 27 at 860. Good numbers. Yes. This is the point where I usually tell you to join our LinkedIn page. You know, LinkedIn reached out to me. For what? Congratulations, because we hit that 50,000. Oh, did so, we? So I have a call set up with them. I don't think they're going to congratulate me on a call. I think they're going to try to sell me LinkedIn marketing. Oh. But the whole reason they reach out is we hit that number. So thanks to each and every one of y'all that's joined that page. Get some more people to join so I can get LinkedIn to call me some more. Okay. <laughs> and then while you're out there on the interwebs, ever listen to our first Friday Q&A, how could you possibly have missed that? If you want to submit a question, either go to allgasthisweek.com or oggn.com. Both have ways for you to submit a question. One thing of note, one of those forms, and I don't know which one, I think it's on OGGN.com, doesn't capture your job title or your email address. And so if you ask us to do something, I have no way of emailing you back. So if you're filling out the form and asking a question and you want us to reply back to you privately, make sure that in your question, you actually give me a way to contact your email address, cell phone number or something. And I'm going to get our webmaster to fix that. Um then finally, if you want to know about all the oil and gas events that are going on, we have a free monthly newsletter. Put it in your inbox once a month. We never spam you. And if you're like myself or any of our experts to come speak, I'm actually interviewing the president of Shell US in a couple weeks at a Reuters event. How cool is that? Oh, yeah. We have a bunch more of that sort of stuff. So just uh, sign up for the newsletter. And like I said, if you want me to come speak, if you want myself or any of our experts to come do a live podcast, it's always a lot of fun. Reach out. We'd be happy to share the details. All right, Paige, you ready to get out of here? Sure. Remember, folks, do great work. Pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.